Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And Thursday on the show, Boston Pops Maestro and our Tanglewood correspondent, Keith Lockhart. Later this hour, Amy Traverso, senior food editor at Yankee Magazine and co-host of the television series Weekends with Yankee. She'll be hosting the dinner at the NEPM Wine and Food Lovers Week dinner at MGM this Saturday. And we'll kick off Massachusetts Maple Month at Maple Corner Farm in Granville. But first, a social landscape ravaged by the pandemic. New spaces that pop up are even more important especially those that are intentionally inclusive to any that may come through. And 10 Forward is exactly that. Ange Buxton and their partner Alex Lunin recently took over the location, and Khalees trekked to their space in Greenfield to check it out. We're talking to the task cam. Yeah. Test, test. I'm sitting with Ange Buxton, one of the owners of 10 Forward in Greenfield, new performance space venue. What inspired you to take over the space and really like make it your own, start making it a part of the community? The first time I walked in was very similar shape to what you'll see now. And uh, I walked in on a night, maybe a couple months after Sarah had taken over and done a lot of the work to make it. Like the vibes were just so right. It's, it's sparkly and there's colored lights and like the sound system is in- incredible. And there's like, all these couches everywhere and people just kind of hanging out. and. I, I to Sarah, who I didn't know was the owner at the time, and I'm just like, where am I? Like, what is this place? I've never been here before. Literally, what is this? And I was here to perform comedy, and she's like, oh, this, this is 10 Forward, you know, I'm, I'm the owner. I was like, what? Like, how have I not heard of this? Space is just incredible. And proceeded to be part of, at the time, one of the weirdest comedy shows I'd ever been a part of. And <laughs> that was like, you know, that's a little bit of a trend. It's like, it's a space where people can come and be experimental and do stuff that, you know, you might not be able to do at a place that isn't literally underground. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not Main Street. This is, you know, this is somewhere you have to go out of your way to, to find and know about. And so you get a lot of people that can basically like truly explore the bounds of artistic expression. After I talked to Sarah that night, I'm just like, I need to be more involved here. They're doing something that no other place is doing. And I just kind of, you know, I got her number, stayed in contact. And then two weeks later, she hit me up. The stars kind of aligned to have that conversation with Sarah. Great vibes, like great connection there. I was just like, this person, her spirit is just so giving, so community oriented just as a human. And then to get to work with her closer and closer throughout 2021 and then 2022, I mean, by then, I was like one of the people she was hitting up to DJ stuff last minute, spot filling on stuff. Every other month doing a queer comedy show. So I have regular spots here and building the connection with Sarah and just seeing the community. And then Alex quit her day job and was like, I need like income. And I was like, well, you could bartend. She's like, I've never bartended. I can't bartend. (laughs) I was like, you know, Sarah's whole thing is building people up. I bet she'd let you get back there and just learn on the job. That's exactly what happened. Then Alex and Sarah started getting close and around that same time, like fall, Sarah was like, you know, I'm pregnant again. I got a toddler. This is a lot of work. <laughs> I got to, I just want to focus on being a mom, like, and what she had already built. The culture, the vibe, the, the truly like community driven spirit was just so in line with how Alex and I operate as humans that we were like, if there's any way financially for us to like make this work, we need to do this. We need to do this. And then it was just a matter of 
okay, what forms do we got to do? Like, you know? But she was ready to be Audi. She was like, I don't want to see the hard work in the community that we've built dissipate or go into the hands of someone who's not queer or, or at least like queer friendly, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it also, you know, Alex was very business minded. It was a director of operations for an international tech company and is like a true, true artist. Our strengths balance each other really well. Like I do DJ and I do comedy and I've been producing events with all these venues. A lot of these venues are not ideal spaces for comedy the way Temp Forward is. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect, so, it's a perfect stand-up spot. It's crazy. Like, <laughs> I'm like so blessed. And like, I'm not saying that because it's in a basement and dark. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, I mean, like, we were high school sweethearts. And, like, one of the biggest ways we connected with each other in high school was through music. You know, she was all about My Chemical Romance. I was all about Brand New, May Day Rest in Peace, because they did get canceled. But let me tell you, <laughs> we were emo kids that our heart and soul loved. You know, we all, we both went to Warp Tour. So, like, to be a part of a venue where you get to see, like, up-and-coming local acts and support true artists is just, like, nuts. And then to be the person, like, facilitating that community, absolutely bananas. Like, you know, like, I'm, like, I'm having, like, the illest imposter syndrome. Like... <laughs> There's yeah. there's no reason for you to, but I totally, as somebody who's recently taken on a job where people are like, you're going to be great at this, and I'm like, but am I? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about queer spaces in, in the Valley, because I think like when I showed up initially, there were a lot more in this place that claims to be super queer friendly, yeah. just a dearth of places to go that there's going to be community there, there's going to be community building there. What about this being here is important and aligns with what you feel about the yeah. space and the town as a whole? So I grew up in Springfield, Alex grew up in Springfield, Forest Park, East Forest Park area. I started getting involved in the Greenfield community in 2018. I was hosting the, the bi-weekly open mics at Hawks and Reed. And I was like, at the time, like the one queer comedian that actually had an open mic. So I felt like super cool about that. And it was like, I don't care that I got to drive to Greenfield from Springfield every other week on a Tuesday to make $5 to do this. Like, <laughs> it's just cool to me to have. And with where we are right now, I think in the economic climate, like economic stability of, a, of a, especially a, a queer space, needs to be first and foremost like as much as we want to be funky and creative and we will we need this to last and so that's kind of like the angle we're coming at it is like let's build something sustainable that is still all the cool things we need from uh, a venue but let's shore up some of our operational processes so we can last so that's kind of one of the angles we're taking for sure and then the other thing is we intend to do continue to do all ages shows we intend to approach things from a restorative mindset you know we are about truly and legitimately believing people can change and having a growth mindset and being like actually inclusive not saying like oh we're inclusive but we're a queer bar so if, if you identify a certain way you can't come like that that's not really how i vibe i truly believe if i sit down and talk to somebody for long enough i'll find like four or five ways that i can relate to them as a human whether it's just like they don't want to brush their teeth sometimes before they go to sleep too you know like there's always something that you can relate to somebody about and that's kind of how like the attitude we bring to the space and like having a growth mindset and trying to build other people up i think that is huge but there's also a piece of that that comes with accountability. This, this is a queer space, not just in name, but in practice. I think I've seen there being friction between people idealizing what a queer space is to an extent that they actually end up tearing things down. Does that make sense? Like, no, that makes sense. nothing is perfect. Like, we're yeah. never, no one's ever going to be perfect. So we need to, like, build each other up and, like, 
Um, and plus, it's one of those things they found hotels did better when there were like three or four of them on a street instead of just one. Because people start looking for those areas where they know they're, even if they can't get the first one, there's going to be a couple of other places for them to go. Like, weirdly, community building that works in an economic standpoint, not being the only one generally helps the community to thrive a little bit more. A hundred, <laughs> and this is exactly what me and Kayla talk about, Kayla from the Majestic talk about all the time, is like, there is this like weird thing where it's like, we can't have too many queer dance parties. Why it's not? Like, thank you. <laughs> Literally, thank you. It's like, dog, there can be so many. In fact, there should be more. There should be more queer there goth should be nights. Tons of there, should yeah. be there should be tons of them. Queer everything. And so, like, you know, stuff. It's yeah. like, the problem is, like, if you feel excluded from this event, uh, yeah, we agree. Like, it's probably not for you. But honestly, yeah. like, it's for everybody. The thing we're doing mostly is letting, like, this extra community that knows that it gets excluded from things understand that, like, no, you are inherently included. Yes, exactly. Like, like, we're a queer-owned bar. We are explicitly a safe space, and I will hold that line. I'm, I mean, and I, I taught in public schools for years. I know, how to, I know how to use restorative justice. If you can do it in a seventh-grade classroom in Springfield, you can do it at a bar in, Temple, uh, in Greenfield. Like, it's really no different. Like, you know, and I, that's kind of the approach. But to, to the, like, why is it important to have queer spaces right now? It's like you see a lot of kids they're on their gender journey sooner than we were even though you know as like a trans identifying person like mine started when i was younger i just didn't have the vocabulary for it i didn't have the community for it right like it's not that i didn't know <laughs> i just didn't have people to talk to about it there was one trans kid in my high school and i remember trying to talk to him about it and he was like oh but you're not trans and if a trans person tells you you're not trans you're like i guess i'm not then you know like, <laughs> Because I did straighten my bangs in his defense. And um, <laughs> I did wear eyeliner because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. Assimilate. You were an emo kid. Of course you wore eyeliner. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were, Alex and I were lucky because uh, Central High School had a really big GSA, Gay Straight Alliance, when we were there. Queer kids now are finding their community on the internet. And so it's, I think, extremely important to have these IRL spaces to come and build community in a, in a fastly what, what am I trying to say? Digi digitizing digi Digimon and a fastly Digimon and a fastly Yu-Gi-Oh world. And, um, and yeah. just for for some folks, what does IRL stand for? Uh, in real life, so we're 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 in person. You know, we we highly encourage masks here because we we want it to be an accessible place for for anybody. So we normalize it. You'll see a lot of the most of the staff will wear masks, so people that need to or want to wear masks don't feel like weird. You know. Mm -hmm. Try to make that normal. That's important to us for sure. Seeing other queer-owned or, or predominantly queer spaces as community partners is huge. I mean, huge. And queer, queer acts, queer other queer performers, queer DJs. Queer, like we need to continue to build each other up. Yeah, and hopefully, like the more you can get people out of their house, the more friends they make. The more friends they make, the better chances they are of like growing and improving as humans. So. Mm -hmm. That's the goal, man. All right, so tell me about performances, some of the mm. things that you're booking, some of the things that like people have asked to use the space for. What can you see here? Oh, man, so much, so much stuff. One of my favorite things that's come out of this space in the past year is this project called Open Decks. I did not start it, it was, so before my time, so I'm taking no credit, but it's a super cool idea, and it is something that we're carrying the torch on. It's just like the idea that, you know, you set up your, your DDJs or your CDJs on the stage, and from beginner to advanced can come up and just get some real-time DJ experience. 
with a good sound system. Uh, we did our first one with true beginners two weeks ago. Everyone was super cool, like all ages, all everything came and, and just got to like play around. And you're a DJ, you get this, like this is the next generation of, DJ, of queer DJs. And so just that alone was like super cool. Oh yeah, burlesque. <laughs> bon Appetit Burlesque is coming to 10 Forward, I heard, through the grapevine. I also March. heard that show is sold out, so you'll have okay. to wait for the next one. That show sold out, y'all. <laughs> you slept. Um, we do these cool, uh, I think our honky-tonk nights are really great, where you can come learn how to do two-step, you can do karaoke with a live band, underground CD releases. You got Valley Girls recording a live album here on Sunday. Tomorrow. Yo, I'm so hyped. Yeah. <laughs> Valley Gals is doing their basically, yeah, their album recording at How 10 did that 4. come about? Because well, Piper, I mean, yeah, Piper used to volunteer here all the time. You know, when she reached out and was like, "Hey, can we like, you know, use the spay?" We're like, "Absolutely!" <laughs> like, we love Valley Gals. Yeah, we've had Thus Love, and we'll see like members from Thus Love just come to you know the queer strip night we had and come to other community events. That um, we got a great little underground scene in Brattleboro called Goth Girl Field Trip, which is a slowly growing, like, I, I can't explain it because they consider booking shows here as them selling out. Because, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they, don't, they wouldn't say it like that. Right. But, but they're so, like, they do parties in the woods. So coming to an actual venue for them is like, a, they're like, okay, this is as far as we can go. Stuff like that, where it's like a collective um, of people who are like, I think, I think we want to try, try this on the big stage and cool. see how it goes. So that's coming. There's a lot of good stuff. We got music open mics, comedy shows, and then movie nights. I wish our movie night movie nights are so fun. <laughs> They're very low key. You wanna just come eat some popcorn, watch some weird goth movie that I don't know anything about. <laughs> Where can people find the things that you're doing? Uh, Instagram is the best. We keep that up to date every day. Also the website uh, is vastly improving. I've been working on that a lot. Thanks for sitting down with me and chatting with me about your awesome space. Heck yeah, thank you. We'll and do it Alex again sometime. Film, yeah, let's do it again. <laughs> I see they have movie night on Thursday with Ex Machina and Johnny Mnemonic. Yes. Our thanks to Ange Buxton and Ten Forward for allowing us to crash their space. Even if Khalees didn't make enough Star Trek references, Ten Forward is the uh, the bridge, the, the bridge on the lounge. Enterprise. On the Enterprise. I am sometimes a forgetful nerd. They just released standing room tickets for the burlesque show. If that's your sort of thing, this. Saturday, you can check their website for details. Coming up, we break into official Massachusetts Maple Month on Maple Corner Farm in Granville and get a brief history lesson on sugaring seasons past, just in time for tonight's Maple Sugar Moon. Ooh, and Yankee Magazine's Amy Traverso will join us coming up in the fabulous 413. I'm at Maple Corner Farm in Granville, where we are going to learn about what's going on this maple sugaring season with the Ripleys. Ripley, believe it or not, we're gonna go into the shed where they're doing the boil. I can smell the wood burning right now. Khalees is here with us, as is Phil Gorman from CISA, the local hero, folks. Phil, what are we doing here today? So we're, we have, we're doing one of our favorite things, which is we get to watch maple syrup being made here in early March at one of the best sugar houses in Western Massachusetts at uh, Maple Corner Farm, and Leon Ripley and his wife Joyce are gonna be our hosts. 
And there's a, a bunch of maple syrup muckety mucks coming too. Yeah, we got here before the we got here before the state agency mucky mucks and the maple syrup producers association because we always want to get the scoop. Plus, we can flush it before they get here. Yeah. Leon, tell me about what we're looking at right here. This is a, a maple syrup evaporator. It has a preheater system on the top. It heat, preheats the sap to basically 150 degrees before it enters the evaporator. The evaporators boil out water from the sap. When the sap comes from the maple tree, it's basically about 1.2 to 2.5% sugar. Very, very low in sugar content. Okay, so what you have to do is you have to boil out 40 to 50 gallons of sap to make a gallon of maple syrup. Keep that ratio in mind. Right. 40 to 50 gallons of sap for right. one gallon of maple syrup. So you want to know why it's so expensive? Right. That's part of the reason why. Think of how much effort it takes yeah. to boil that out. But this machine makes that a little easier. Yes, it does. Yes, this is a modern uh, energy efficient evaporator. It has what we call a lockdown door on it and an air injected system in the firebox. So that not only do you burn the wood, but you're burning the gases that are created from the wood. So it's kind of a gasification unit. It looks like a steam engine. This is the state of the art. I think you bought it four or five years ago, and it's a beautiful piece of equipment. It's called the Lafayette Waterloo Small Hurricane. That's my new band name. Ah! Then you open up. That's the sound of the uh, where the burn's happening right now. He's throwing some more wood in there. It's amazing. The heat. Heat rolling off it onto me feels great. Yes. All right, so what's this room all about there, Leon? This is the reverse osmosis room, okay? So what's reverse osmosis? And basically what it does is in the machine, you have a pump that builds 500, 600 pounds per square inch pressure. You can see the gauge up there, okay? When it does, in, there's thousands of micron filters like this one here in those, steel, in those stainless steel canisters. What it does is the pump builds up pressure, pumps that sap through the micron filters. What it does, does is it breaks down the water molecules under pressure. The water molecules go one direction and the sweetened or sugar molecules go up to the, to the, to the uh, concentrate tank. From there it's fed back into the evaporator. So it saves time on boiling because it's getting most of the Takes water out and getting the getting sugar. To, two thirds of the water depending on how we set the machine. When did you get this reverse osmosis machine? Oh, we've been using these for about 20 years already. 20 years, wow. How long have you been maple sugaring? We've been sugaring since 1835. We started with a... Uh, Are you a vampire? No. <laughs> oh, not you personally, I see. My great-great-grandfather started in 1835. We started with wooden wooden buckets with wooden tanks, and we gathered the sap in the woods and boiled in the woods. That lower sugar house I boiled with my dad in 1959, and it uh, burned down. We built a new sugar house over on the corner there in 1960, and we sugared there from 1960 to 2015. And we built this new operation here. You've seen the breadth and depth of um, coming up on three quarters of a century right. of maple sugaring. How has maple sugaring changed since when you were boiling uh, with your dad in 1959 versus what you're doing right now? Not technologically wise, but maybe climatologically and sap run wise. Well, basically, we started out sugaring with, with wooden buckets, and, and, uh, and if we made seven to eight gallons a day, we thought we were doing a uh, a big deal. Today we actually process between 15 and 100 gallons of maple syrup a day when we have the sap available from about 4,000 taps. Wow. Tell me about the, how the the sap runs have changed though since the 50s to here well, we are in 2023. The seasons are much earlier. We actually went back last two or three years we went back to a colder 
uh, February and March. This year, once again, we're into a very early season. Some of the folks up north have started sugaring in November and December. The only problem with that is the sugar content is quite low, so you're really boiling an awful lot of water to get very much snow. November and December? Yeah. Like, I have That's talked to farmers who used to sugar in April. Right. We still sugar in April if we can, but uh, uh, the season normally was like from February 15th to April 15th. Today, who knows? We wow. could be all done by the end of March. We've had a great year so far. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, you know, we, we've made almost a little over 600 gallons. So came quite early and quite fast. Uh-huh. Good thing you're ready with all this yeah. machinery here. We're in luck. We actually have other sugar makers here. Besides you, Phil Corman, because you are backyard maple sugar. Yeah, backyard stuff count. But I, I want to bring over some of So this is Monty from uh, New England Public Media. And Elise. Hey, Elise, how you doing? What's your name? Jerry Ferrandino from Ferrandino Maple. Where are you located? Hamden, Massachusetts. Nice. Tell me about the season for you and like how you're making your uh, maple syrup there. Oh, it's going well. It's going well. We've uh, we, we tapped 3,000 trees and uh, started a little early this year, like the end of January the 27th we tapped. And we've made about 600 gallons of syrup so far. Wow. What lets you know now is the time to tap? How do you know? Because it's changed over that we just learned about over the last century yeah. when to tap. What's the signal for maple sugar? It's about when to put that tap in. Uh, warm days, like in the 40s, and uh, cold nights. So when you get into the 40s, you can feel the warm sun. So the maple sugars know? It's like the spidey scent starts tingling? They do, they do, I guess. <laughs> People used to get grade A maple syrup, grade B. All that's changed over the last couple of years. How is that all delineated now? There's, there's no more B grade, but they used to call B grade is called very dark. Which is my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the good so. one. It's the one you want to use for cooking because it's the most intense. Yeah, it's exactly. the more mapley and less sugary. Right, exactly. Yeah. Stronger flavor. Later season sap, the warmer the sap is, the more, really honestly, bacteria grows in the sap that when you boil it out, you get a strong flavor. Uh-huh. Here at Maple Corner Farm in Granville with Leon Ripley, Phil Corman from Cease of Local Hero Folks, and Khalees and I. It smells amazing. It does smell amazing. Here. We can not only smell the wood burning, but we can also smell the, the, maple. the maple. We need to do scratch and sniff radio. I know, right? <laughs> Vermont gets a lot of credit for maple syrup. Canada gets a lot of credit for maple syrup. What makes Massachusetts maple syrup great? Maple syrup is great no matter from which, whatever state it's from. Uh, <laughs> All the states make a great maple syrup. Uh, each region has a little different flavor. Any, any comments about the Canadian cartel? You know, Canada has always made a lot of syrup and always will. It doesn't affect the, the, Mass, the Massachusetts producers a whole lot. Uh, we've had a lot of loyal customers that prefer our local syrup. There are, there are wholesale houses that sell a lot of Canadian syrup. But if you want to get the real thing, come to the farm. Yeah, and here we are. We've opened up that door again. They're going to put some more wood in this awesome high-efficiency boiler right there. Okay, so we're leaving where they are doing the boil, and we're going to go across the street to where the restaurant is. It is so gorgeous here. What a fun drive with a stick shift. Not too far from Blanford, where the, the ski area is. And oh, yeah. Before I forget, I did bring you guys another nip. Oh, good. Has it got booze in this? My maple syrup, man. Thank you! Khalees, you also, you boil maple syrup. You got our friend's sap and have been boiling it on your stove. Yes. I was successful once, and the first time was maybe not so much. You um, ruined a pot. Yeah, I, well, it's oh, you've been got to ruin a pot if you do that. I know, right? <laughs> it's like a rite of passage. Okay, now we're going into the, uh, the sugar shack. Hello. 
Joyce? Yes. Monty? Good. Pleasure to meet you. Don't get up. Don't get up. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. So they've got all sorts of jarred jellies and wonderful baked goods and maple candy and cookies, as well as what look like rentable snowshoes and cross-country skis. Super fun. But is this like a maple sugaring museum here? Yes. Look at all this yes. stuff. And you're, jo you're Joyce, Joyce Ripley. Yes. Joyce Ripley, yes. From Maple Corner Farm. Yes. Um, this is uh, items that I have collected over the years, put it together, put a little display here, especially popular with the children. Yeah. They'll sit on the floor here and just look at it. Tell me about what some of these artifacts are, what they used to be used okay. for. The farm was settled here in 1812. Blanford came down here in 1835. But at that point in time, in, in the entire world actually, whatever you wanted on a farm, you had to make. Yeah. So they made their own molds. Uh, that heart mold is from this farm. And what were they making in the mold? Candy? Candy. Maple candy. candy. You'd put it obviously on a flat surface, fill it up with your uh, cooked down syrup, and it would harden in there, and then you just pop it out. Heart shaped. Very cute. There's an early grading kit there, a very, very early hydrometer that Can was given to me. Can you explain what a hydrometer a is hydro and how it gets used? A hydrometer is um, a measuring instrument that you'd put in a tube of maple syrup, and it will float. And it flows up, then you have to look at the reading on the hydrometer for density, how dense the syrup is. If the syrup isn't dense enough, it will not keep. If it is too dense, it will start forming the little sugar crystals. Oh. So you want to get the right density. Uh, if you're going to go any way, any which way, you're better off a little too heavy than too light. But that's an early hydrometer. Uh, we still use the hydrometers now. What's this picture here? That is the Cook Family Farm in Blanford at the end of uh, Herrick Road. Now it is part of the city of Springfield, the reservoir uh, land, but that was their farm, I'm guessing, in the eight, late 1800s. And are those bulls pulling a sled with a big vat of sap? Oxen filling oh, a wow. tank. And if you notice, there's a rock, mm -hmm. and the sled is on the rock. That's the tip of the sled, so it will all drain out completely. Wow. Gravity feed was used by all the farmers. Even, even Leon's father and grandfather used gravity feed at the sugar house. Our old sugar house has a tank on the hill above it so that you can gravity feed sap down into the sugar house. And then you've got what they call agro-tourism going on here we now, right? We have agro-tourism, yes. I've got my main museum over here. Uh, school children all come during sugaring with their classes. We go into a history of how the maple syrup was first discovered by the Native Americans. Uh, they used their uh, birch bark containers. And then how when the early settlers came, they were taught how to make the maple syrup by the Native Americans. And they, first they had wooden containers. And then eventually, as metal became available in the late 1800s, they would go on to metal uh, buckets. And before that was wooden buckets. And you've got this amazing array of all these wooden buckets and all these uh, old cans and, and bottles to put sap in and some other, what are these taps over here, the spouts? This, this, this is all a collection of spouts. If you start at the top, this is a piece of, I believe, sumac, and you take that uh, iron rod right there, and the, the pith on the side of the spout is soft, and that would push out the middle of it so the sap will come out. So and is that a real one that was used? That one there is from Leon's Uncle Julius, who was still in his workshop about 50 years after he passed away. And when we walked in the workshop, it was like he'd never left it. Wow. Um, it was really quite a sight. And I'm wondering, do you have concerns as the climate keeps changing on us and how it impacts both cross-country skiing and sugaring? Because cross-country skiing, another part of the agro business that Maple Corner Farm has here in Granville. Yes, um, we've, we've all kind of joked a little bit about the climate. The next business we get is not going to depend on the weather. Yeah. Uh, but this one here, yes, uh, we're tapping earlier in this season now than we used to. 45 years ago when I came up here, we tapped around George Washington's birthday. This year we tapped February 1st. Same thing with the skiing. We were open a few days in December. Uh, since then, we've been patiently waiting for snow, which we have gotten some this week. 
and my skiers are just calling me off the hook, waiting to, they're just anxious to get here. Mm. Yes, it definitely has an effect. If you don't believe in climate change, talk to a farmer. <laughs> Anywhere in the world. Yeah, they can tell you a lot. Do you want me to hold something? Sure, you want to hold the bucket? I'd like to hold There is a very official looking bucket that Phil Corman from CESA is holding with a very official looking drill inside it. Winton Pitkoff, what is your role here? Good morning, Monty. I am the coordinator of the Massachusetts Maple Producers Association. And where do you live? I live in Worcester. Nice. Oh, you used to be in the valley, right? I did. I was in, I was in the hill towns for a long time. And so tell me about this bucket and the drill and what you're going to be doing here today, Winton. So this is a tradition going back many decades that the association organizes a kickoff event of the sugaring season every year and it's to celebrate the first agricultural crop of the year which is pure maple syrup. Because of climate change the tapping happens a lot earlier now has uh, the Mass Maples Producer Association decided that maybe they need to change when the official tapping is going to happen? March has traditionally been maple month and now it's not actually just fun to say it it's the law there's a law that says March is maple month. Did you hear that the climate? <laughs> and I should add that that is thanks to a law that was introduced by uh, Representative Steve Kulik who we all miss we lost him last year and we're going to keep that tradition climate change you're right is impacting when the season happens but it's not it's not the same every year it's it's more about inconsistency than it is about just making it later there have been years recently where you could tap your trees and and it wouldn't start running until late march and it ran well into april we even had sugar makers boiling in may a few years ago um, and then there's years like this year where it was uh, the sugar makers who tapped early in, in january got some runs and made some syrup in january so as the head of the mass maple producers Association. What's your assessment of writ large maple season so far in Massachusetts? It's been a really good season for sugar makers. The season, like I said, is inconsistent uh, as far as when it's going to happen, but sugar makers are farmers and farmers are adaptable um, and they know how to, to, to read the weather and, and predict what's going to happen um, and they, they get out ahead of it and have made the most of the season already. Who gets to use the hand crank drill? Uh, the, traditionally, the, the highest ranking administration official gets to tap the first tree, so I believe this year it's going to be uh, the, the commissioner-designate, uh, Ashley Randall. From Deerfield. From Deerfield. First female ag commissioner, right? Yes. We're going to have her on the show soon. With that, we will read the official proclamation. Whereas Massachusetts is one of the top maple syrup producing states in the United States, and whereas maple sugaring is the first sign of the state's annual agricultural awakening, and whereas Massachusetts sugar makers produce more than 70,000 gallons of syrup each year, and whereas Massachusetts maple producers employ more than 1,000 workers and contribute more than 15 million to the Commonwealth's economy each year, now, therefore, I, Maura T. Healy, Governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, do hereby proclaim March 2023 to be Maple Month and urge all the citizens of the Commonwealth to take cognizance of this event and participate fittingly in its observance. And it's signed by Her Excellency Maura T. Healy, Kimberly Driscoll, Lieutenant Governor, and William Francis Galvin, Secretary of the Commonwealth. Sorry to say it ain't quite warm enough, I guess. You make it roll. That means running. another two months of winter. <laughs> I was going to make that same joke. <laughs> 
The person reading the Governor's Maple Month proclamation was the new Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources Commissioner Ashley Randall from Deerfield. She will join us on the show in a fortnight. Thanks to CESA, full disclosure, an underwriter of NEPM and Maple Corner Farm in Granville. Coming up in just a minute, Amy Traverso, the senior food editor at Yankee Magazine, who will host the dinner part of the NEPM Wine and Food Lovers Dinner this Saturday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. Amy Traverso is the senior food editor at Yankee Magazine and co-host of the television series Weekends with Yankee, as well as the podcast Talking With My Mouthful. Amy's also the author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook, which was a finalist for the Julia Child Award for Best First-Time Author. Amy lives in the Boston area but has strong 413 connection as she is a graduate of Smith College, not unlike the PBS legend we'll all be paying tribute to this weekend at the NEPM Wine and Food Lovers Weekend, the aforementioned Julia Child, hero of mine as well. Amy will share some of her Yankee adventures and Julia Child lore and demonstrate a cocktail recipe with the students of Holyoke Community College's Culinary Arts Program. Amy Traverso, welcome to the Fabulous 413. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, oh, you yeah. sound oh, great. great. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. I'm excited to uh, have dinner with you on Saturday night. At the... I can't wait. Yeah, you got a little bit of a glimpse of what the menu is going to look like. Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, tell me about it. And it's Julia Child inspired, right? There's yes. like vichyssoise and some watercress exactly. salad. And things. Tell me a little bit about what you're looking forward to about about oh the my dinner. Gosh. Okay. I'm so excited. This yeah, so this 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 year is the 60th anniversary of when Julia Child premiered the French chef uh, French chef on public television and re you know remade public television as we know it today. Um, so this menu to celebrate her is really pulling some of her classics. So we're starting out with oysters and champagne, what better? And also Berkshire Mountain Gin martinis. Um, And then moving on to um, Julia Child's recipe for stuffed mushrooms, or in French, I guess they'd say champignon farci gruyere. Wow, (laughs) nice. I'm not very good. I don't have a great French accent. Champignon is champagne. (laughs) (laughs) So it's basically gruyere and all kinds of yummy things and mushrooms. Moving on to the second course, which is vichyssoise. Yep, just like you said, the what? French potato soup. There we go. Yep. For not Creamy fancy French people, vichyssoise sounds uh, inaccessible. <laughs> but when you say potato soup, they're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like, like ultra creamy soup. It's mm, so good. Yeah. Um, watercress salad with goat cheese and prosciutto. Really nice third course. And then moving on to maybe Julia's, I don't know, is it her signature recipe, beef bourguignon? Um, it's just such a good recipe. I've made it myself. And then if you're a vegetarian, there's a delicious mushroom quiche. Um, the fifth course, a la Julia, and in the French tradition, is a cheese course with cheeses from Jasper Hill Farm, which is, I don't know, it's, I think it's New England's really top cheese producer. Mm. Um, so that's going to be incredible. And then finally, um, Rianne de Sava, which is a chocolate almond cake for dessert. It's just going to be so delicious. We're going to be telling stories and toasting Julia and just having a great time. Well, I think the dinner might almost be sold out. So act now. Go to NEPM.org and see. But the uh, the wine tasting on Friday, I know that there's still some room available for and we're speaking with Amy Traverso from Yankee Magazine, the food editor, and the uh, you're you're a television host yourself now. It's not just you behind a, a, a counter doing recipes like Julia Child, <laughs> a little more Bourdain-esque, exploring the world of, of New England. What Everybody loves food, but was there a moment 
in your life where it was an aha moment where you said, this is my my vocation. Now I'm yes. Absolutely. Well, I, so I grew up in I grew up in Windsor, Connecticut, in an Italian American family where food was absolutely at the heart of everything. You know, every Sunday we'd have dinner at my grandmother's house, the homemade pasta, all of it. Um, and I was working as a general reporter at Boston Magazine um, in my early publishing days, and the restaurant critic uh, wanted occasionally needed just extra bodies, extra mouths to join her when she was going out to check a restaurant. Tough life. You, you can only eat so much, you know. So, so Is I that true? You can only eat so much? Does this I don't... look like a man who has had all he could eat? <laughs> That's true. I pushed the boundaries of that my entire career. But she would, she would kind of take pity on me. I was making nothing. I was like the little urchin in the office. So she would, I and and I went with her and I watched her take notes and, and I thought, oh my God, this is a job? Like you can do this for a living? And it kind of brought, I was like, this is what I love about my childhood. You know, I could, I could bring all this together and, and make, so I started doing it and actually got my big break at Yankee, but I got my television break at what was then WGBY, now New England Public Media. Um, we did a local TV show um, called On the Menu, and it was Whoa. it was my first chance to stand in front of a camera and talk, and it was a lot of fun. When Great was that? Time. Gosh, that was 2003. Okay, so what were some of the spots that you hit in that On the Menu show? Well, one play, one segment that really <laughs> comes to mind was we went to the Northampton Farmers Market. And at that time, farmers markets were still kind of new. So the segment was like, there's this thing called a farmer's market. <laughs> <laughs> and they have them in Europe, but they're brand new here. And look at this, you know. So I remember that um, we uh, visited, oh, a smokehouse in Springfield that made amazing sausages. And I'm, is it? Or was it Adolf's we went to? In any case, I remember that segment. Um, we visited some kitchenware store in Thorne's Marketplace. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, do you know which one I'm talking yeah, it about? Was Sorry, Mike. It was Different Drummer, and now it's Baker's Finn. Yeah. Yes, it was Different Drummer, and we <laughs> talked about, like, Essential Kitchen. It was just, it was so much fun. <laughs> We're speaking with Amy Traverso, who is the senior food editor for Yankee Magazine, the co-host of the television series Weekends with Yankee, as well as the podcast Talking With My Mouthful, and uh, not unlike Julia Child, a Smith alumna. When were you at Smith? And tell us about some of your, your favorite moments from that era of your life there, Amy. Oh, my gosh. Do you want me to age myself No. Here? <laughs> Give no, us a okay. general broad swath. I am swath. proud. I am proudly middle-aged. Um, I, gra- I, was, I graduated Smith in 1993. Um, so I actually have a reunion coming up this year. It nice. was an amazing Ooh. experience. And really the, the food memory that stands out the most was, um, and I, we were definitely very aware that Julia had gone there and very proud of that fact, even long before I had a career doing this. But um, I had my first taste of Indian food uh, when I was a freshman at Smith. And it was, I believe the restaurant's India Palace, and I believe it's still there on State it's Street. Sure, it- in oh, the in the house. In the house. Thank in you. In the house's Main Street or Bri- Bridge. I forget. Yeah, it's Bridge. Bridge. Yeah. At that point. Oh. 
I yeah. mean, the Who had jobs in Northampton? <laughs> <laughs> These two people yeah, right yeah. here. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty good introduction to Indian food, though, yeah. I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the revelation of the flavors of those spices, of the, like, symphony of spice flavors. I remember my I tried Malai Kofta, and it was, it was like that scene in uh, Wizard of Oz where Dorothy walks out the black and white uh, <laughs> cabin into the Technicolor world. <laughs> that was exactly it. <laughs> well, coming up more with Amy Traverso, the senior food editor at Yankee Magazine and co-host of the television series Weekends with Yankee, who will be with us live at the NEPM Wine and Food Lovers Weekend with dinner this Saturday. We'll geek out with Amy in person on Saturday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. We're speaking with Amy Traverso, the senior food editor at Yankee Magazine. Her work has also been published in the Boston Globe, Severe, Travel and Leisure, and she's appeared on the Martha Stewart Show. Throwdown with Bobby Flay and Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. I need to know what that was like. Martha? No, Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> oh, Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> because my, my partner has a running theory that he's only nice to children. well and you seem to have firsthand knowledge (laughs) so I didn't talk to him I saw him kind of he was walking through the dining room looking very like harried and frazzled and but the funniest thing and I swear this must have been made up I ordered a pork dish and they knew we basically had a little crew from Boston Magazine there and they were the cake because that's where I was working at the time and they they made they kind of set up the drama of like the critic from Boston magazines coming to try your restaurant you know the big reveal and I ordered a pork like pork chop and it came out raw in the middle and I thought that's so unlikely like chefs know how to cook pork right Mm. but okay fine so I sent it back and we knew there were cameras around the room it was all very subtle because there were some camera operators who were moving, but there were also, you know, cameras in the like corners of the room and there was a microphone under our table. We knew all that. Um, but they brought it back out and it was still raw. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm fine eating like slightly pink pork, right. but this was raw. And I thought there is no way <laughs> that this is happening by accident. And then in the actual episode, the finished episode, you know, in the background, in the in the kitchen, Gordon's like, you sent out raw pork to the food editor of Boston Magazine. You know? So you're saying it's fixed. Well, I think they didn't get the first take. Like, I think, I think they sent it out raw on purpose. Yeah, I do. I believe that. And then maybe they didn't get the right footage. So they had to do it again. The next thing you're going to tell us is that Weekends with Yankee is fixed on PBS, starring Amy Traverso, who joins us on the air. Uh, that show, it, sh- it shows us some of the most amazing food places in New England. Um, I have a friend who was like, oh, Amy Traverso, I, I can't, I get so mad at her because she's exposing all of these best places that were secret <laughs> to the world. And w- one of the first criti- critiques we got of this show was like, if you tell everybody that the 413 is fabulous, everybody's going to move here. Do you get, um, do you get that kind of pushback from the locals in the places that you're going to? Or does it feel like something that... It's time well spent showing these little nooks and crannies of New England. Well, we ha- it's interesting. We haven't gotten pushback from locals. There is a business, and honestly, oh, shoot, I sh- this is 
bad form for me. There, there was a small artisan baking business in Vermont that was operated on an honor system and it was so good. And we sang its praises scene. And then we followed up with another, I think it was on newengland.com or website, another, you know, praise for this place. And the owners were so upset because they can't, they're not set up to handle that kind of volume. Uh-huh. And so they said, you know, <laughs> we we asked, please do not write about us again. <laughs> Damn Yankees. <laughs> so that was the only time I actually got. Um, yeah. But most of the time we hear very, you know, very kind, appreciative comments from business owners. And it's like a small thing, but it is absolutely the deep joy of my job when I you come across someone who's working so hard and doing amazing work and making the world better. And then, you know, you hear from them that mentioning their business absolutely like gave them a boost and helped them keep going. It just actually happened for me. I got a, a note from um, Karen Rowe, um, who's Sugar House, High Hope Sugar House in the Pioneer Valley. I mentioned it's just a a great place to go and have that sugar shack breakfast, much like you guys just discussed in your segment. <laughs> And she said, you know, they've been doing this for 32 years. And to think we finally made it in Yankee magazine <laughs> makes it worth all our hard work over the years, which just like my heart almost exploded. That's also. pretty great. Yeah. So, Amy Traverso, you have a cookbook about apples. And although this weekend is Wine and Food Weekend, cider is a really big thing. There around will be here. ciders at the Wine and food and Tasting on Friday. I know that. They're Yay! not included in the title, so I feel like they're getting short shrift. They're there, though. Anyhow. <laughs> they usually do. Yeah. <laughs> What are your feelings of like some of your favorite ciders? Do you prefer hard versus sweet? Any varieties that you really like? Any cideries oh, you like? Oh gosh. Well, you know, I'm okay. Well, Ragged Hill Cider is going to be ah. at the Friday night event and they're wonderful. Where are they? Um, I love their cider. Um, they are located in Massachusetts. Um, where specifically? I'm blanking on the specific we'll location. We'll take it. It's yes. Okay. <laughs> I apologize. No worries. Um, and, uh, but they're terrific. So I'm very excited to see them. Um, and then, of course, Clarkdale Fruit Farms. Um, those wonderful guys. You you know them. Yes, we I do. We all love them. Yes. Um, they're, they're in West Deerfield. They make cider that I absolutely love. And then um, I love Artifact Cider, um, mm-hmm. it, which began in Florence, right? Um, and now is... Or wait, am I mixing? No, it's, that's it was. Right. It's kind of so, confusing. It's, it's Colrain like, via Everett, I think, yeah. and via now oh, Florence. And now Florence, yeah. but also okay. still yes. Everett. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's oh, Cambridge, see. rather. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yes, and now they have Cambridge, which yes. I, I live closer to there now, so that's wonderful. So those are three local uh, Massachusetts uh, cider makers. And, oh, my gosh, how could you forget um, uh, our friends who make the wonderful Pomo and cider syrup at Carr's Cider House, right. also in uh, the Frank- in Franklin County. So, so many great makers, so yes. many. Amy Traverso from Yankee Magazine, who's the senior food editor, yesterday on the show, we've only got a couple minutes left, but we introduced a new segment called Pizza Quest, Western Massachusetts, Ooh. where we believe the best pizzas in New Haven, goes without saying. You cover all of New uh-huh. England. Any places uh, not in New Haven the four counties of not. Western Mass that you've been to that you feel like have particularly <laughs> good pizza? Okay. Um, oh my gosh. I, here's a question going back to my college days. Is is it Jimmy's still there in Northampton? Was it Jimmy's or Johnny's? It was 
Do you mean oh, Joe's? Joe's. <laughs> Joe's. It was a J name. Was a guy named Jay. <laughs> yes. Joe's is definite. Joe's Pizza House with with all of the the Mexican iconography yes. on the wall. Yeah, yeah, I never understood it, but that I mean, it's a particular style of pizza. But, but when you're, I I loved the pesto pizza there. I do remember that really fondly. Um, and then uh, heading farther north, let's see. Um, uh, heading into not Deerfield, but Greenfield. Um, I, it's always really wonderful to be able to stop at Magpie. All right. Um, We're putting that on the list of Amy Traverso's uh, okay. picks for our Western <laughs> Mass Pizza Quest. Amy Traverso is going to join us at the NEPM Food and Wine Dinner this Saturday night. Tickets are almost sold out or might be sold out, but go and check and at least come to be part of the wine tasting on Friday at MGM. It'll all support New England Public Media. I'm looking forward to seeing you this Saturday, Amy. Thank you so Me much. Too. Thank you so much. <laughs> Tomorrow in the fabulous 413, we'll be celebrating International Women's Day with two Hoyoke Boricuas who decided to go back to Puerto Rico, Josie Valentin and Miriam Quinones, plus more of our tour of Merriam-Webster's Dictionary in Springfield. And Thursday on the show, we'll introduce our Tanglewood correspondent, Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart. Got a question for the maestro? Email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or text us anytime at 1-800-639-9120. Our director is Tony Dunn, who's recently been rediscovered in a piece of amber. Our engineer is birthday Betsy Cortez. Happy birthday, Betsy! Our technical team is Kara. It's Australian for beer, Foster, and Bart, don't have a cow, man, Rankin. And punk rock, Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Boxcar Lilies, Gaslight Tinkers, Thus Love, Homebody, and The Brass. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.